All right, hello, friends listening in Canada, Montana, Jamaica, Siam, of course, our friends in Ireland, and our friends in Idaho. We've gone from Montana to Idaho. Bat Flips and Maple Dips is growing. This is episode 14. Uh, don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash batflipsmapledips. Uh, we're on Twitter and Instagram at BFMD Podcast. All the streams, Spotify, Google Play Music, iTunes, SoundCloud. No Nexopia still. I'm sorry, guys. No Nexopia. We just, we can't crack that Nexopia crowd. Uh, my name's Clayton Croker, coming to you from Saskatoon. Uh, to my left here, we have uh, Justin. Don't call me Mr. Anderson. And, of course, the uh, Maritime Mistress Maker and uh, the president of the Alan Doyle Fan Club, we have uh, Patrick Marsh. Uh, usually, we kick the podcast off by talking about uh, the Jays, because this is a Blue Jays podcast. And, of course, big week for the Jays. Josh Donaldson, he gone. Uh, of course, it's always fun when we play Baltimore, but uh, for the first time, we have a guest on Bat Flips and Maple Dips. I don't know about you, uh, Justin Patrick, but I'm excited. On a scale of 1 to 10, Patrick, our guest coming up, are you pretty excited, bud? I would say I am an 11 out of 10. I like breaking rules. You're always breaking rules every week. Justin, can you top 11? No, because that's that's against the thing. It's like saying 110. percent It's just it's not possible. I hate people I'm, that do I'm the 110. percent um, Joining <laughs> us right now on Skype uh, again, the first uh, guest in Bathlips Maple Dips history. He is from Saskatoon, so this is kind of a big deal for me and Justin here. Great. Uh, he has worked for CBC News and Sports as a reporter in Calgary and Saskatoon. He's now based in Toronto. If you are a fan of curling, you know this guy. Uh, Devin Haru joins us on the line. Devin, thanks for joining us, and how's it going? Great expectations with an 11 out of 10, 110%. That's what I'm going to give you guys. Hey, awesome. It's great to be joined uh, joined on the show with you guys. And, of course, I live right across from – I'm going to call it the Sky Dome. I think we all want to call it the Sky Dome still. I live right across the street from the Sky Dome, and it was my intention when I moved here that I'd be casually strolling over to Blue Jays' playoff games. That's not the case, no. and you can imagine – the shockwave sent through this city when Donaldson was traded. Some like it, some don't, some on the fence. But they're talking about ball, but we're not talking about playoff baseball in this city, of course. Well, one thing we want to talk to you about, Devin, is, uh, of course, curling, uh, the Little League World Series. Uh, But from my standpoint, I'm going to be a little selfish here and kick things (laughs) off. Because I remember Devin Haru uh, starting his kind of broadcast career, if you will, at Bedford Road Collegiate. In the gymnasium, calling games for the Bedford Road Invitational Tournament. So Devin Haru would spit <laughs> hot fire on the mic, and it made me want to do the same thing. So at Holy Cross High School, I started calling the high school games. Like I started being the guy, like, "Oh, Steve Bariski from three, you know, because Devin did that at Brits, and he would be all over the media there. And I was like, "Man, I want to do this," you know. So I got to kind of. Wow. Thank Devin Haru for kind of getting me into the broadcast because now I'm a morning show host in my hometown. Uh, Devin, my question is this, because you started out as a young reporter looking up to more senior reporters. Now you are in those senior reporter shoes where young reporters are looking up to you. Do you ever look back and think like, man, this is crazy. Like just a few years ago, I was looking up to these guys. Now people are looking up to me. Well, first of all, Clayton, you make me sound old. So thank you for that. (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) No, look. Uh, every single day I wake up and let me tell you a story because right when I was getting started at Bedford road and look, I grew up, we moved to the East side. I was a few blocks away from Holy cross. (laughs) I could have went to that school, 
but I wanted to go to Bedford Road because of the Brit. And yes, I got a little excited behind the microphone and I still carry that excitement with me today. But when I was 16 years old, you guys, I came to Toronto all by myself. I don't know why my parents let me do that, but I came here and I walked by the massive CBC building that I now live five minutes away from. And I went, I'm going to work in that building one day. And I also actually believed that my face was going to be on the side of the building. So I'm still climbing. I'm still working towards that. But I wake up every single morning and I go, I have no idea how I'm able to do this. I think I have the best job in the world. It's incredible to me that the CBC has allowed me to travel around the world, specifically over the last couple of years, watching sports. I've had a front row seat to some of the most dramatic sporting moments for Canada and and other sports teams over the last few years. And yeah, I think I, uh, I'm getting paid to watch sports and it's the best thing in the world. And yes, it all started back at Bedford Road, a high school basketball tournament that I think is still considered to be one of the best basketball tournaments. I don't think it's at the level it was maybe when, when we were there. I think that was sort of heyday of Brit. Um, but man, what a tournament. I'm so fortunate to come from Saskatoon because it was a place, it's a smaller market where I could screw up. I could make rookie mistakes. I'll never forget interviewing Brian Taurus for the first time, being scared. Can we swear on this? Being scared out of my pants, uh, talking to him. So I'm so grateful for what I was able to do in Saskatoon because it let me screw up. It let me try new things. And it sort of let me get to the point where I am today. So, yeah, I pinch myself every morning. Imagine having Brian Towers as your peewee baseball coach. That was my <laughs> reality when I was 13 Are years old. Are you serious? Scariest coach ever. Because he wouldn't get mad, but he would get no. like, quiet mad, which is way worse than like yelling disappointed mad. Disappointed mad. Why didn't you cover first base on that pitch there, Clayton? Uh, I forgot. Oh, you forgot. And then just silence, and you're like, oh, man, this legendary football coach hates me. Uh, Dev, one more thing about Brit. Can I guess your number one Brit moments and see if I can predict it here? Do it. Try Robert it Sacre. I need a little reminding. Robert Sacre. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would probably have to say that. And, and you know, it, I got to admit, Clayton, at this point, it kind of – it's all sort of a blur to me, this crazy loud gym, me eating horribly for four or five <laughs> days every January and being sort of in the twilight zone that Brit is. But yeah, I, I sometimes forget the names and the players that went through there. But yeah, Robert Sacre was one of the guys. And of course, he went on to Gonzaga right and then into the NBA. And um, but OK, as a player, Robert Sacre, but I got to admit those Friday night thrillers that Holy Cross would always be in. And trust me, I loved to hate Holy Cross. <laughs> I did. did. <laughs> I mean, look, Bods and I, Chris Bodner and I are our best buds, the Holman family, all of those guys who are sort of legends of, of the Brit. But that Friday night game when all of those Eastsiders would pack our gym and bring their obnoxious noise and everything else <laughs> okay. they would bring with them into that gym drove me crazy and they always won that game and Barry always found a way to win the game and it drove me crazy but it was awesome right <laughs> and so Robert Sacre and Holy Cross love them hate them they made for an electric atmosphere perfect uh 
Yeah, I I mean, I wish I would have grown up in Saskatoon. I grew up up the, up the road in Lloydminster, so I don't have any of this crazy excitement stories. I wish I was here for that. <laughs> uh, so you, you just finished covering Canada's national team at the Little League World Series down in uh, Williamsport. I mean, for yeah. those of us who haven't been there, uh, it's just seeing the pictures of the facility and all the video that comes out of it. And it's the cool stories, like like Dio Gamma. Like, can you talk a bit about that? Uh, when you were down there with covering the team, when they found out that, that Dio was going to be allowed to come play, what was the mood like? Yeah, and, and, you know, I should let you guys know that I was I had no idea what I was getting into, uh, <laughs> which is usually the case with every story that I that I walk into in my career now. But look, I mean, the reality of it is, is CBC Sports, at least from my perspective, and and I was the sports editor of the University of Saskatchewan newspaper and mm-hmm. on and on and on. And I think what I realized early in my career is that I wanted to make people who don't care about sports care about sports. And how do we do that? We bring the human element, the, the human existence that is so relatable to everything we go about in our lives. And so that's sort of the lens in which I try and tell every sports story I write or I broadcast. And so when we heard this story of Dio Gamma, and of course CBC had the broadcast rights to the national championships in Mirabel, Quebec, and I went there and I didn't know what the level of baseball was going to be like, and I was blown away. I mean, credit to us. I think we did a great job. The crew was exceptional. The camera angles, we brought a big broadcast feel, Mm -hmm. but the way these guys were throwing heat and hitting the ball and this team from Wally, BC, exceptional. You get to know them. You get to know some of the names. And then of course the name that sort of became the face of the team, Dio Gamma, 13 years old, born in Las Vegas, has a complicated family past. Let's call it what it is. Mm -hmm. We get wind the day after the championship from his father that he's not going to be able to go travel with the team because of immigration issues. We could spend a lot of time getting into the immigration issues. We're not going to do that. All I knew as a reporter is that I'm going to tell this story. I'm going to make it as factual as possible. It kind of spread across the country like wildfire and a remarkable thing happened and I'm glad we're talking about it because I haven't been able to share this story. So here's a little bit of a exclusive tidbit for the podcast. I was actually on the phone with a member of parliament from Wally BC when the decision was coming down in real time on the Wednesday night from the federal immigration minister. It's one of the great moments in my career to be honest. I get chills thinking about it because there I am on the phone uh, texting with the father of Dio Gamma on the phone with the MP, and we get this decision all at the same time that Dio Gamma is going to be able to go. It was awesome. We were able to get out the breaking news. And the next morning, I walked into the office and I told my bosses that it would be a great disservice to our audience and to, as a Canadian broadcaster not to go to Williamsport. Mm-hmm. Two hours later, I was in a car driving south to Williamsport. Um, I was only going to be there for two days, <laughs> two days turned into a week <laughs> and I was on the field, the practice field, uh, when Dio Gamma walked onto the field in his Canada Jersey, fresh after getting all the photos and all the hoopla. It was magical. You guys, That's great. um, he, he, he was such a part of this team and they were like a family and, 
And I get goosebumps thinking about that moment when he walked onto that lush green grass just steps away from historic Lamity Stadium where he joined his Canadian teammates. It's it's one of the great moments, like I said, in my career. Wow. Yeah, that's an incredible story. I know. Uh, thanks for sharing that exclusive tidbit. That's something that, uh, that nobody knew. So, yeah, thanks for that. Um, one other guy I want to talk about, kind of the internet sensation of the uh, Little League World Series, Big Al, who hits yes. who hits dingers like this. <laughs> I I can't remember. Besides, I know uh, Patrick Patrick thinks that Monet Davis was perhaps one of the biggest uh, stories of the Little League World Series in recent memory. But in terms of an internet sensation, I think I think Big Al is like right up there. Like he captured headlines not just in the sporting world, but he was on every newscast throughout North America, really. And I'm, I'm even guessing across the pond, too. Uh, but can you think of a guy who kind of stole that viral spotlight more than Big Al, like in any sport recently? No, no, <laughs> not at all. And and funny about that, and this is probably my biggest regret, because I was so hyper-focused on telling the story of this Canadian team, and mm-hmm. they had some really good stuff going on. Look, had they gone and... And lost that that wild game against uh, Spain on that Saturday night. I probably would have looked for different story angles. And Big Al was on my list. I <laughs> never found him. And I searched. But the guy. So so here's the thing you guys need to know. Like, I, I know we sort of get a sense in Canada of what the Little League World Series is like. And ESPN, you, you get the TSN feed and the whole bit. Mm-hmm. I had ESPN on in my hotel room whenever I was in my room on ESPN you guys would not believe the programming around this Little League World Series I'm talking 24-7 Little League World Series every one of their shows a look back at past championships in-depth interviews and then who's on my screen every waking moment Big Al (laughs) and the best part of it all is Big Al gave us a William port tour big al style That's awesome. and it was the most hilarious thing i've ever seen <laughs> oh i just remember seeing all the uh the pictures in the video when the the phillies and mets played their their classic <laughs> game down there with reese hoskins posting a video with him and then bautista taking the picture uh just like the way that those mlb guys kind of embraced his his celebrity too which which was really really cool <laughs> Can I make a quick point about that? Because yeah. I think it's brilliant. Of course, it was it was a second annual. It's mm-hmm. going to be an annual thing. Major League, uh, Little League Classic, where they bring in the teams. And I believe, um, is it is it Pittsburgh in the in the Phillies? Or I can't remember who's going to be in the game next year. It's a Pittsburgh team. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that that's going to be playing in that game. But whatever it is. I think the major leaguers have more fun than the little leaguers. Like you see these guys coming off the plane and on the bus. I saw them at the ballpark. Like in a way, you guys, sort of the general arching takeaway for me was that it it reminds us of the purity of sport, right? Because these kids aren't getting paid. They're doing it for the love of the game. The post-game press conferences (laughs) were my favorite part because these little kids would roll into like this MLB-style post-game conference room and their eyes would light up. Some of them would ooh and ah. And, And what they would do is they would sort of weave in between being a kid and just being like emotional and pouring their heart out. And then almost like a switch goes off reminding like, 
oh, I'm supposed to be like a cool major leaguer and be really composed and say all the really horrible, cliche, boring <laughs> things we yeah. get that we despise. So so to me, there there was a big thing about the purity of sport. And I think for those major leaguers, if for three hours in Williamsport, they were reminded of how they learn to love a game they're getting paid millions to do right. and complain about and lose sight of what this is all really about. Well, so that's kind of my touchy-feely sort of thing about that. Yeah, and I can imagine for some of those guys too who uh, maybe come from poorer countries, they would never would have got to play in a stadium like that in an atmosphere like that as, as kids. So it probably gives them a bit of a, a sense of almost fulfillment that they have kind of, they've, they've made it to the Little League World Series in a sense now. Well, and, and and imagine this, you guys. Like, I mean, here's what twelve-year-old Nate Kalina. That's what a hundred pounds, soaking yeah. wet, uh, bases loaded, two out, Canada leading in this dramatic game. He's got to make the play, makes that catch, scoops it just off the mound before. Who knows? It might have gone up the middle, and Spain might have won that game. But I'm just watching these kids, 7,000 people on an idyllic night, a Saturday night in Williamsport, bright lights. It doesn't get much bigger than that. And that's why so many of the greats, when you look at the list, it's just staggering. When you look at the list of players that have gone through the Little League World Series, because it just grooms these kids to get ice in their veins for big moments. And that was one of them that stuck out to me. Wow, so we we talked a little bit about the purity of sport there, which kind of helps us shift gears uh, into the Olympics because that was something that you were a big part of uh, this year in Pyeongchang. Uh, you covered the figure skating, the speed skating, uh, and the sliding, right, as well as the curling? And there were a few other things in there. Um, I think I got up to the Moguls Hill and watched Mikhail Kingsbury win gold. And I know nothing about moguls and had a bit of a panic attack going up this mountain going, what the <laughs> hell am I going to write about? <laughs> and, 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 and it's one of those moments where you kind of just have to remind yourself, guys, I'm just telling a story. What is the story on this night? And to be honest, that story is actually one of my favorite stories I've ever written in my career because Kingsbury won gold. I found his parents. It started to snow. Like it was it was like a dream, like a snow globe. And so that that would be some other advice to journalists is don't psych yourself out. At the end of the day, we're just telling stories and a story will always sort of unroll, un unfurl right in front of your eyes. But yes, I, I got around at the Olympics. <laughs> How was your uh, how was your experience in South Korea? Were there a lot of those, you know, special moments that just seemed to sort of come organically? Yeah, and you know, I've been trying over the last few months because because getting to the Olympics when you're a sports reporter is like your dream. It's a pinnacle, right? And you work so hard to get there and and then you're there and I I I don't want to make it sound like I was I was underwhelmed by it, but you're in such a bubble that in a way the Olympics could have been held in any place in the world. And I would have had no idea where the hell I was because it is such a bubble and you literally go from a bus to a venue 
and I slept maybe three hours a night for 40 consecutive days. And you're just, it's like a twilight zone and you're going through the motions. But that being said, I think to me, I figured out the magic of the Olympics from going to all of these venues and watching these moments and watching champions rise up and watching people who have trained their entire lives completely fall apart. And I, and I don't want to segue to Canada's curling team, but in a way, um, the, the pressure of that moment became really great on the Canadian curlers. So that's a moment in my career that I'll never forget because Canada had never not medaled at the Olympics and both teams were off the podium. That was a remarkable moment that stands out. I think Ted Jan Bloman, uh, the speed skater who moved from the Netherlands four years ago to Canada, took a huge chance. You know, I moved to Calgary uh, a year ago right now to spend time at the Oval and up at Canada Olympic Park building relationships with all these people. I wasn't filing. I literally was just hanging out. I was hanging out, building relationships. And Ted Jan Bloman, on one October day, set the new Oval record for the 10,000 meter. And I interviewed him immediately after, and he told me in that interview that he felt like something magical could happen in October, you guys. Hmm. And guess what? He won the gold medal at the Olympics in the 10,000 meter. Wow. And I was able to craft a story going back to October on the day Ted Jan Bloman, when nobody else was at the rink and I was there watching him, when he set the record for the Oval, tell me all those months earlier that something magical could happen. So there were these sort of crazy synchronicities that just sort of unfolded. I felt really prepared. I felt like I knew the athletes really well. And just for a personal note for me, not to pump my tires, but for me, it was so sweet to be so dialed in with my storytelling because you have this fear that you get one shot under the biggest pressure of your career to capture a moment. And, and, and I felt like for 17 days in South Korea that I was, that I, I didn't screw up. <laughs> and, that was, and, and that was my biggest fear. Don't screw it up and, um, and make Canadians feel like they were sort of with me along with the journey. And, uh, and I had a blast. Awesome. Do you think you'll end up uh, back at the Olympics in 2022? Uh, before that, 2020, I already, I'm already doing my research for 2020, and I think Canada is going to have an extraordinary Olympics. I think it's going to be really fun. If you look at the young tennis players mm-hmm. who could do, who could do well. If you look at Brooke Henderson on the golf course, who could do well. Um, you look at somebody like Taylor Rock, the Canadian sensation in the pool, Penny Alexiak. If Andre DeGrasse gets his act together, I think 2020 could be a remarkable summer games for Canada. So I think you'll see me at the 2020 Olympics. And I, I just want to go to the Olympics for the rest of my career. I told my <laughs> bosses when I got back, if I do this for the rest of my life, I'll be pretty happy. And uh, I've, I've been given every indication that I should prepare to be go uh, to be going to the Olympics. So that's exciting. And, um, and, to be able to share the stories of amateur athletes with Canadians is is a great honor for me because I think we can do, all of us collectively can do a better job of, of pushing up our amateur athletes 
they don't just pop up once every four years. And now that I'm more dialed in and following a lot of their journeys very closely behind the scenes, um, I, I want to do whatever I can to highlight just how much goes into that singular moment every four years and that they aren't sort of this flash in the pan that Canadians don't really know, you know? Yeah, no, I totally get where you're coming from. And I find it very appropriate that you have such a strong passion for for the Olympics and such a strong passion for all these sports that you cover, especially curling. Of course, we got to talk about curling because you're to. known for having this passion. Uh, <laughs> you wrote a beautiful piece about Sandra Schmirler, who won Olympic gold in 1998 uh, in curling in Nagano, Japan. Uh, I think you wrote the piece a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about Sandra and what curling means to you? And I know Justin is a big curler, so I kind of let you guys go off on uh, on curling for a while here. And let me just preface by what I'm going to talk about Sandra and what she meant to me by saying I have absolutely no idea how this all happened, but it, I literally felt like I was not in the curling world one day and that I woke up and, and this follows me absolutely everywhere I go now. I have conversations around this entire country of people saying, you're the curling guy. <laughs> I don't know how it happened, but I've kind of eased into the idea that if I'm the curling guy for my career, I think I'm okay with that. I think I'm okay with that. <laughs> but look, um, for Sandra Schmirler, I'll never forget it. Uh, look, I was in I was in a hotel in Humboldt, Saskatchewan, in the middle of the night, watching her and and that dream team win Olympic gold. And it's as clear to me right now as I talk to you guys as it was when I was watching it. And I, I think either the title or my lead or was whatever is is that this was a woman who was larger than life and. And I am so damn proud to be from Saskatchewan and people laugh at me in Toronto or wherever I go because I feel like I'm a Saskatchewan ambassador. <laughs> but I think what really struck a nerve with the Schmirler team and made them so likable is what you see is what you get. And guys, can you imagine this? Like, think about this moment for a second. So Sandra Schmirler, Joe McCusker, Marcia Goodright. Jan Beckford, like these women were my superheroes growing up. They're like super women to me. And there I am at my first Olympics broadcasting alongside Joan freaking McCusker. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? 20 years after yeah. they won Olympic gold. Like, I, 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 it there have been storybook moments like this in my career, but this one stands out with Joan and just hearing the behind the scenes stories about how, like, Joan and I have cried in bars talking about this team for so many nights, you guys, because she has told me stories about Sandra and what was going on with her children, what was going on with the team, what was going on when she found out she had cancer. I get emotional talking mm -hmm. about it. The night they found out that Sandra probably wasn't going to make it, the last phone calls, like, I've heard all of this. And, and so they are 
what you saw on the ice is what you got. They were like the girls, the moms, the sisters, the cousins, the friends who were next door. Quintessentially Saskatchewan to a T. Mm -hmm. And my great regret for that team and for Sandra Schmirler is I, I will always wonder just how good that team could have been in terms of setting all the records. Look, they never lost an international bond spill that they played in. They were perfect yeah. on every in every international bond spill they played in. And like that shot in 1997 in the Olympic trials, the first ever ones at the Keystone Center in Brandon against Shannon Clybrink, the in-off. We yeah. can all see it. We all know it. Yep. I was thinking about that. Yep. Like, I think that's, I think, and I'm biased, I'll openly admit it, but I think that's the greatest curling shot under pressure because it also came at a time when you don't have the technology and everything we know about the way a rock curls and the sweeping techniques and everything of how the game has evolved. So, so when you consider that shot under how little we knew about curling and, and everything about the game at that point, I think it's the best shot under pressure ever in the game. And then they go on and they do such an admirable job to win it, to win gold, her life cut short. Um, but I get the great pleasure of traveling not only around Canada, but around the world. I get to talk to people internationally about Sandra Schmirler. And you should just see the way people revere her. And so she's one of these great people in sport and in life who just represents so much more than just throwing a rock up and down a sheet of ice and the legacy she's created with the telethon and on and on and on and on. We could, we could do a whole podcast on Sandra Schmiller, but she meant the world to me because she made me believe this is my final thought. She made me believe in something greater than our province that we could be from Saskatchewan and that we could leave our prairie borders and go out and kick ass. That's what she represented to me. No, I, I completely uh, agree with you on everything you've said. I, as somebody who was born, I was five years old when they won that Olympic gold medal. So I don't really remember it, but I've watched, yeah. I've watched the game. I've seen, I've seen the in-off from the, from the trials. And I mean, my friends and I, whenever, we're, whenever we call in-off, we still call it the Sandra. Uh, right. <laughs> do you want to try right. Sandra? Yeah, totally. hell yeah, we do. Yeah, we, let's do the Sandra. So it, it's she's been described to me by by a close friend as the Wayne Gretzky of curling because she was just so far ahead of her time when she played. Like when you think of Wayne Gretzky playing hockey, he was he was light years ahead of the rest of the league at that time, and that was how Sandra was in the late '90s when with her team. Like they were just so far ahead of the competition. You talk about and, how and they were. They were defeated, right? Sorry, yeah. I'm t I'm totally interrupting. No, that's fine. You, you mentioned you mentioned Sandra Schmirler and Wayne Gretzky in the yeah. same sentence, and it reminds me <laughs> of a story. And I hope Joe McCusker does not mind me telling <laughs> you guys this sure. story. But at the 1998 Olympics, when Wayne and the Dream Team were, were all there, mm -hmm. listen to this story. This is awesome. I don't know how public this is, but Joan and Jan Becker and Schmirler and them. They all go to Canada House, right? And and Mike Harris is a good friend of mine who was there at those Olympics as well and won silver. So we've all talked about this. They have told me stories that one day I hope to put into a book. Mm -hmm. But 
curlers at the 1998 Olympics were like the overweight, like, <laughs> why are you here sort of Olympians, right? Like they were like the laughing stock. They, nobody thought at that point that curlers should be at the Olympics. So as that, as the game sort of developed, <laughs> this is awesome. Sandra and Joan and Jan and, and Marcia and all them, they sort of became the superstars, right? Like yeah. they were the girls from Saskatchewan who were the curlers. So one day towards the end of the Olympics, they roll into Canada house and the men's hockey team is there. Wayne Gretzky's there. And Sandra and they all walk in and Sandra was always a little bit shy and sort of, uh, I don't know if they're going to know who I am. And they walk into the room and, and, and Joan, who's like this, like over the top, she's loud, she's energetic. She's like, are you kidding me? Let's get in here. Let's talk to all the hockey players, Wayne Gretzky and all of them came over and introduced themselves to Sandra Schmerler <laughs> wow, wow. and the curling team. That's the star power these gals from Saskatchewan had Crazy. in that room. And I, I guess Jan is Jan Becker is a bit of a joker and she was um, she was joking about, oh, I wonder if they're gonna want our autograph. And it turns out like they did. They <laughs> wanted their autograph. Incredible. And I just I just think that is such an incredible story. Um, I don't know how widely known it was, but that sort of just gives you a little bit of perspective of how popular these small town girls from Saskatchewan who threw rocks up and down a curling sheet were. I feel bad for Patrick here because he doesn't get the Saskatchewan nostalgia behind Sandra Schmirler and that rink. Because, again, everyone from Saskatchewan is so proud of Sandra Schmirler. And when you start talking about her, all those feels and all those emotions come out. Because, again, here in Saskatchewan, growing up here, I remember two Olympic moments, Sandra Schmirler and Donovan Bailey. Yeah. Growing up, I remember yeah. those two moments. Those were awesome those were just awesome. And I can't believe you shared those stories with us, Devin. I mean, you exceeded awesome. our expectations and then some. Um, and again, as two Sasky boys, we couldn't be more thrilled to have a fellow Sasky guy on here. Yeah. Uh, hopefully when you're at Shell Lake next time, I'll be at the Briskies cabin. I'll be uh, walking on over to Laser Bob's. Hopefully you and Brayden are there. We can uh, have a couple pints. Maybe listen to Rod Peterson call a rider game or something like that. I know that's like your favorite thing to do ever. We're not going to get on the riders here because... Oh, uh, we could talk about the riders no, for an hour. I'm a Winnipeg Blue Bomber fan. I didn't want to admit that, but um, we, we don't want to talk about the riders because we can go off and I'll just get angry because they just lost Labor Day. Um, but Devin, thanks a bunch for uh, having us on the podcast. All uh, Or having us on the podcast. I feel like he's the host of the yeah. show with how he just did this entire thing. Like, it's awesome. Look, I'll give you a prediction right now. Riders and Thai Cats in the Grey Cup in Edmonton. I'm just going to hang up on you I right now, that. actually. No, I've 30 minutes of gold and you do that to me. Uh, one thing I will say, Holy Cross at Brits, they hate us because they ain't us, okay? And we would pack that gym. Everyone hates us at that tournament, but we always show up and everyone chirps us. I'm not going to let that slide. And uh, yeah, you are right. Chris Bodner and the Holman, some of the best uh, basketball players to grace that court. So uh, I, loved your, uh, I loved your insight, man. It was awesome and uh we really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to uh talk to us about just your experiences man you're a great storyteller and uh we appreciate it man anytime guys thanks for the uh thanks for the opportunity
What an unreal first guest on the Bat Flips Maple Dips podcast. Like, Devin Haru just set the bar very, very high. I don't think we can have another guest anymore because it's just going to be a major letdown. Nobody's going to want to come on. No one's going to want to come on. <laughs> how do you follow that act? <laughs> he made it feel like he was hosting the podcast. That's how good he was. It's like following a Matthew McConaughey Oscar speech. You just can't. <laughs> and again, for me, he's one of the reasons I got into broadcasting. broadcasting. Like, he's a journalist. He's legit. Yeah, he's one he's of the best incredible. that CBC has. Yeah. I make mediocre jokes in a media market in Saskatoon. So, I mean, it's kind of it's kind of different. But, uh, no, thanks again, Devin. Let's talk about some baseball. Let's talk about the week that was because uh, our buddy Justin here, he correctly predicted the record of the Jays. They went 2-6. No, and six. I think it was Patrick. Patrick, Patrick did. did. Sorry, I got my names mixed up again. <laughs> Patrick, you correctly did it. So, you know, you get the sarcastic slow clap. I'll take the, hey! I'll take the credit, though. I mean, <laughs> I, was still, I still can't believe I was the high guy at three wins last week, and we didn't even make three. Uh, brutal. Good we're, for we're you, a great, man. We're a yep. great football team. Good for you. <laughs> Baseball. Um, yeah, so we went two and six. Uh, we got swept by the Trash Birds now, oh, man. Uh, a.k.a. Baltimore. Are we the Trash Birds now? No, they're the Trash Birds. <laughs> they're still really we're bad. We're the Cool Birds. They're still really bad. I know Patrick and I had this conversation uh, when when we were getting swept by them, I, I messaged him. I said, are, "Are we are we the Trash Birds now?" And Patrick was like, "No, they still only have forty wins." <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Not even we're that bad. <laughs> uh, again, though, the losses were bad. No, um, they were great. We talked about the seven nothing loss, but that twelve to five killing, and then we lost ten to five. Like, what's going on with our team? Because I mean. We expect to score more than five runs, but still, five runs isn't bad. But our pitching, allowing 12 runs and 10 runs, what's going on, guys? Like, what do we need to do to get our pitching to the level it was a few years ago? Well, the first step is going to be to fire our pitching coach. Uh, And then the second thing is going to be take all these guys, all these losers we have in the bullpen, and shoot them. In a rocket okay. right into the sun. Okay, shoot him in a rocket to the sun. I was like, we're not just going to commit murder because they can't pitch a baseball. It's always the rocket into the sun. It's week. my job They're to overreact, to... Patrick. It's my job to overreact. <laughs> well, we're sending them all into the sun. I can say now I'm very, very firmly, now more than ever, off the Pannon hype train. Thank God. Uh, R.I.P. Uh, it lasted all of, what, two weeks? Not even? Maybe two weeks. Yeah. yeah. Was it even that long? Maybe six days? <laughs> Maybe eight. Yeah. <laughs> it was, was just, it? it was, that was an ugly game. Um, what was crazy to me was that with the 12 5 game, we had so many players mm. who had multi hit games and we still have 10 guys on base again. Ugh. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a struggle this year. But the one thing is, Danny Jansen has been a very good bright spot because not only is he playing well, but he's a young star that is playing well. Uh, He's still hitting over 300. McKinney, Gurriel, they're still hitting over 300. So our bats are still performing well. It's just the pitching. And it's no surprise that Blue Jay pitching has been the uh, Achilles heel of this team for a long, long time. But are you guys just sick and tired of our bats showing up every night? Well, almost every night. I mean, that Miami series, they were a little off. But uh, And then our pitching just letting them down. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> What's frustrating is if you look at the lineup right now, and we have a bunch of players who have played kind of most of the whole season, but not really because everybody needs a day off. And guys like Aledmas Diaz have 17 home runs. Mm-hmm. And there's like 
10 other guys on her team that have similar stat lines. They're all batting in and around 250. They all got close to 20 or 20 home runs. And so there's a balance to the offense, but yet somehow the pitching has been so god-awful. They are just liquid shit. <laughs> well, I, I was I was watching the first inning of tonight's game, and, and when Jonathan Davis made his big league debut, he was the 10th Blue Jay this season to make his big league debut. Ugh. And, I mean, that can be a good thing or a bad thing. It's and a bad thing this, this year. year. We've, we've had some good debuts. Like We've had Gurriel play well. We've had Jansen play well. We've seen some good stuff from Ryan Baraki. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, there, there have been some bright spots. And there's going to be ups and downs. You have rookie players who are getting their first taste of big league ball. And this is what the rebuild is. Um, we, we all kind of, well, the three of us anyway, expected this to, to be how the season would go. Uh, but I don't know if we expected it to be kind of this much of a roller coaster ride. The one thing is, though, we came back against Miami. We had that 2-1 to series win, mm-hmm. uh, that clutch win. Justin Smoke. We got to talk Smoke about Daddy. Smoke Daddy. But can we also talk about John Gibbons with the managerial move to put him in, pinch hitting in the ninth yeah. inning? I understand that there aren't a lot of John Gibbons fans who listen to this podcast. But John Gibbons putting in Smoke there was a pretty good move. Move of the year by him, because I can't really remember any other moves. But do you think that John Gibbons obviously didn't save his job with that move? But to all the Gibby haters out there, did he prove something to them with that move? Yeah. To me, he He, he must have. Yeah. Because Gibby gets a lot of heat, and I'm a big Gibby fan. You guys kind of chirp Gibby a little bit, but I love Gibby. Gibby has always been a favorite of mine just because he's Gibby, you know? He looks drunk (laughs) half the time. He's got his gift Twitter page, you know? He's he's (laughs) hilarious. And there are moments where, yes, he screws the pooch a.k.a. fucks the dog. But at the same time, he has moments where he rips into Kevin Pillar for an awful base-running mistake. And you think at that point of the season, why is a manager ripping into a player? Who cares? Whatever. But that just shows that he still cares. He still cares about his players. He still cares about winning games because he's putting in guys in the ninth inning who are hitting grand slams for the win. I love that. Uh, McKinney had another good game, three for five in the leadoff spots. Do you think he has a future as a leadoff hitter, if not for the Jays, someone else? Because... This McKinney guy is starting to impress me a little bit. He's looking good. Yeah, yeah I kind of. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I'm just. He's playing great defense uh, in left field too, which is something that can't be kind of overlooked. We've had a history with Teoscar Hernandez up there this season mm-hmm. in the corners, kind of making a mockery of the position. McKinney's done done very well so far, so I, I'm going to give him props just for his defense, not even just his bat. Yeah, I w- I would agree. McKinney, I don't. I feel like he's doing the same thing that Aledmus Diaz is doing right now, which is playing for a job. He knows that he's looking uh, uh, from the outside in as far as a uh, potential starting spot next year. And I don't know what he's tapped into. Uh, it certainly isn't the quality hitting coach. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's definitely some sort of inner beast inside of him that's just saying go out there and just leave it all out there on the diamond because it's either going to be triple a or you know it's going to be spot starts here and there when guys get injured uh, unless he can show what he's made of and he's definitely doing that since the call-up and kudos to him he's he's out there he's he's swinging but he's swinging with discipline and that's really important one topic we talk about on uh, the podcast here a lot, Gritch Daddy. 
Gritchy, Randall Gritchick, who was batting below 100 during a time this season. And when you're batting below 100, you're either getting sent down or you're not even going to sniff 200 for the rest of the year, maybe hit 201, 202. His average right now is 243 on the year. Mm-hmm. That should be a way bigger story. For this guy to go from batting below 100 to 243, has he done enough for you guys to say, hey, you know what, maybe we should give him an everyday spot in the outfield next year. Maybe he has done enough to make up for that awful slow start. Justin, do you think Gritch Daddy belongs on the team next year? 100%. 100%? 100%. What about 110%? <laughs> oh, I forgot you don't like that. I don't that. give That's that. True. But his defense has been great all season. I, I just mentioned that with McKinney. An outfield that features primarily a Randall Grichuk in right field slash center when Kevin Plar gets a day off, because it seems like we're going to have Kevin Plar around Good. for at least one more season. I know Clayton loves that. Yeah. Um, and maybe we'll see Kendris Morales somehow get traded in the offseason, or who knows, maybe Tyler Hernandez gets moved. We might see some, we could see some interesting things. It's going to be, I don't think there's going to be anybody on our current Major League Baseball roster who's who's been in the league for a couple of years is going to be untouchable. Guys like Gurriel may be untouchable, mm-hmm. but say a guy like Randall Grichuk may, maybe we'll try and trade him. Maybe we'll try and trade Teoscar Hernandez. It's, it's going to be a completely different team on opening day next year versus what we had this season. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing kind of how this front office assembles a pitching staff for next year because like Patrick has said, we need to send lots of them into on a rocket into the sun and it's going to be a completely different looking staff next season and we'll be getting into the front office in a bit because i have some not so nice things to say about them (laughs) but uh let's finish the week that was um that 6-3 loss again justin smoke still hitting a home run in the ninth but it was a little too late uh we talked about smoke he's probably back he should have been an all-star this year um but still played pretty good um that six to one win 10 k's from uh, SRF. That's what we like to call him. Are we going to call him Surf? Is that his new nickname? Or are we just going to stick to SRF? Justin, you're the big fan of him. You're the vice president of his fan club. What do you think? SRF. I don't, SRF, I like that. I don't think... I think Surf just sounds not great. And if SRF. we're talking about the... <laughs> uh, if we're talking about the like peasant days, Surf is not a good thing. No. <laughs> so 10Ks from Reed Foley. Yeah. He's been so up and down, though. Do you trust this guy? Um, In the long run... Yes. This Sean Reed Foley was the guy who's been in the minor leagues all season. Uh, I watched the Jays in 30 because we were, we were at the at the football game that mm-hmm. we will not mention the outcome of, just for your sake. Thank you. <laughs> and so after we got home, I watched Jays in 30. Um, and the confidence that he was walking off the field with after every inning that he finished was what I wanted to see. Like he would strike out a gun in the inning and he would just strut off that mound like he belonged. And yeah. I think that's the biggest thing for these young kids is that yeah, they might be rookies, but they have the talent and like act like you belong. Like if you fake it till you make it, right? And this this guy either is faking it big time or he's showing us shades of what he could be in the future. And he's always going to be, I said last week, he's going to be a six or seven inning guy with a ton of strikeouts. He's not going to be that complete game Roy Halladay-esque pitcher who can go out there and throw 120 pitches and finish 10 innings for you. But he's going to be that guy who's going to give you a ton of strikeouts. He might give up his fair share of fly balls and home runs, but 10 strikeouts in a game, that sure limits the amount of hits the opposing team can get. He also only walked one batter one guy. and scattered four hits too. Yeah. Uh, Patrick, I'll ask you the same question. Do you trust Sean Reed Foley? 
Yeah, of course. Uh, I think what we saw in the 6-1 win was more reflective of where he's at in his development. Getting placed in games against the Yankees and the Red Sox is not going to be particularly helpful to our prospects' development. I think we saw it with both SRF and uh, Ryan Barucki in the last couple weeks is they got banged up real bad. And it's just because those two teams are so dialed in right now trying to fight to, you know, for for solid playoff positioning that they were doomed when they hit the mound. It did, didn't matter what was going to happen. Um, but now in a game against Miami in a park that's a little more pitcher friendly, I just feel I feel like this is the the Sean Reed Foley that we're going to see next year. Uh, I'm not saying he's going to go out and win the Cy Young, but I think we're going to see consistent wheeling and dealing when it comes to strikeouts. And I think, you know, scattering four hits as well. And he only walked one batter. So, again, he's keeping guys off base and he's gunning them down. This is exactly what we expected from him. And this is more reflective of him as a player and not when he got roughed up by, you know, the big bad Yankees and the Red Sox of the world. See, I disagree with you guys because you guys bring up the point, well, he didn't pitch well against Boston and New York, but we saw the real Sean Reed Foley in this game. Well, guess what? He's going to have to pitch against Boston and New York a bunch. So if he can't pitch against them, why should we trust him? Because those are the big games that we need to win. And if he can't win those games, why can't we trust him? Well, I, I feel like, adding to your point there, we, we have to pitch these guys against those teams to see where they are. And we, when we saw Brecky, he's been beat up by Boston a couple of times. And, and that's how they learn. Like, you don't learn by pitching nine innings every game. You learn by getting hit around True. a couple of times, right? So these guys are going to make mistakes. And I think I think once we accept that, it's going to be a little bit of a of a growing process watching these guys kind of sort of make their mistakes. But once they get through it, it, it's 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 better in the long run. I understand there is growing pains, but I just don't like how up and down he's been. He's been so, so good, but so, so bad. Mm-hmm. He hasn't been like a medium pitcher. And usually young pitchers, they have that kind of medium stretch of like four or five games where they're like, okay, you know, they're consistently going five or six. Sean Reed Foley is either, you know, 10Ks yeah. or getting roughed up by the third inning, you know. So that's my only thing about Sean Reed Foley. Love the guy. Mm-hmm. Love SRF. But I just can't trust him yet. I will soon. But maybe not yet. Uh, Luke Maley, three for three in that game, three doubles. Uh, Thomas Pannone, are you on the hype train again here, Patrick, or no? Uh, he was solid in the, his relief effort. Maybe that's where he belongs. Maybe he shouldn't be making starts. God, we have so many of those guys, though. Well, he shouldn't be a starter. Well, we should, he should be in the bullpen. We saw Aaron Sanchez start in the bullpen and then move out and have a good year. Very true. So it, it, I think it's Patrick said it a couple of times before that it's a good way for these guys to get some experience in. And then once they have that experience, we can try them in a starting role. And if they excel, excellent. If they pull up Joe Biagini and don't, then we send him back to the pen or move on. It wouldn't be an episode of Bat Flips and Maple Dips if there wasn't a Joe Biagini dig. Oh, I was oh. waiting for that one. I think that was our latest one ever. I know we had an interview, but like what, 52 minutes in without a Joe Biagini dig? What happened to us? Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the series going on right now. Uh, spoiler alert, it's been going horribly. Uh, we're Until playing now. Tampa Bay. Uh, Tampa Bay has been one of the hottest teams in baseball, um, but still 7-1 to to Tampa Bay. And they haven't been that good this year. I mean, I know they've been hot, so whatever. But Marcus Stroman, one and two-thirds, six hits, four and runs. 
I realize he's got a blister. Yeah. Do you think that is a good enough excuse for for his outing? No, and I mean, there's been some talk this week that the Jays might just shut him down, and honestly, that's probably for the best. They like, should. What's the point of? We saw with Aaron Sanchez how many times he tried to come back last season before they just said, you know what, let's just stick a fork in him. He's done. And I think Strowman's at that point right now where he just needs to get healthy and focus on being strong for the new season in 2019. I can hear Patrick typing right now, yeah. trying to look something up. <laughs> Guess who's going to WebMD, guys? You know how long okay. it takes. Okay, you had an awkward pause for a WebMD <laughs> search. <laughs> I had to go for a WebMD reference. No, but oh, in all seriousness, man. look, blisters usually take three to seven days to heal. That's usually around the time frame that a pitcher has off between starts. Right. Somewhere in the middle there, five I think is the magic number. Yet somehow. Marcus Stroman has had this blister go on for, what, two months now? I think we were talking about the blister. It's been a I while. know we were talking about it in early August, right? We're yeah, still yeah. talking about it now. It's still happening. Shut him down. Obviously, there's some kind of fundamental problem with it, with his delivery, or it's something to do with the stitches in the baseball, whatever it is. I just don't understand why these guys feel like they have to throw so hard that they just keep getting blisters or they just keep aggravating the same stupid blister over and over again. Yeah. It takes three to seven days to heal them, but if you have them every three to seven days, it's never going to heal and you're just going to pitch like shit. Let's and that's talk, what's happening with Stroman. Let's talk about the uh, game after that, too, because I'm done talking about that 7-1 to <laughs> loss. We only had four hits that game. I'm over it. Uh, four nothing then <laughs> in the second game. Ryan yeah, Barucki, again, here's the thing. We just chirp pitching the entire time. But Ryan Barucki, six innings, three hits, only two walks, five Ks. He's been looking great. Him and our at SRF. I mean, I still put Barucki uh, ahead yeah. of SRF in the uh, Blue Jay power rankings right now when it comes to mm-hmm. young pitchers. But how do we only have three hits on a bullpen day against Tampa? Ten strikeouts on a bullpen day. Tampa's got a good record. I'm not sure what it is, but I know that they have a winning record on their bullpen days. It's, it's that's wor- crazy. It's working for them. That's why they're 12 games over 500. I think that's what they are right now. Um, we're, yep. beating, we're beating them right now 9-3, to three, which is awesome. Our, our boy Rowdy Tellez in his first major league at bat picked, mm-hmm. up a, picked up a base hit. So good for him. Welcome to the show, bud. Um so I mean, at least tonight we're doing something. But back to back to the bullpen day, we saw our boy John Axford have a good opener before we traded him to the, to the Dodgers. True. Is it a is it a viable strategy? Like, could this be something we see going forward? No. No. Like teams going <laughs> yeah. on bullpen days, abs- I'd be mad. The, I'd the, stop watching baseball. The Rays are twelve games over five hundred. It's working for them. And the Rays. No oh, man. No man. I'd rather. I'd rather do the six-man rotation than I would do bullpen days. I'm bullpen days suck. Yeah, I'm with you there. I just thought it was an interesting discussion point. That there's people saying that, hey, this bullpen thing is it's a legit strategy. Yeah, but it works if you have a good bullpen. If you have a shitty bullpen like we do, a bullpen day means another loss. Well, it's it's the thing. The fact is that you're bringing a new guy in every one to two innings who's throwing 98, and it's a different 98. Like the. It's it's keeping hitters off balance. I think that's probably why it's working. Uh, but it only works if you have yes quality bullpen quality pitchers who can pitch ninety eight, but also be able to throw, you know, a secondary pitch like 
a cutter or a curveball or at least have like you know a b plus mm-hmm. slider and the thing is our bullpen top to bottom i keep saying this is just it's pure shit <laughs> and there are a lot of other teams that are dealing with shitty bullpens yeah and i i just think it works for tampa right now the same way that having an extremely strong bullpen ended up working out for the kansas city royals uh in 2015 was it or 16 uh, you guys remember? I want to say 15. What year did they win the World Series? I want to say 16, 16 now. Yeah, yeah 16. 16. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, they... No, no, it was 2015, guys, because oh. 2016 was we played Cleveland. Oh, right. Yeah. I was right from the beginning. I should have gone with oh. my gut. See, it. it just seems like such yeah. a distant memory at this point. It's hard to remember. When we yeah, I know, because <laughs> it's almost like the watching Infinity War again. You look at all the players from our playoff runs they've all been snapped off our teams turned into ash yeah good riddance the most yeah all right so uh let's look ahead at the uh week ahead here let's predict this week uh again we got tampa let's skip this game because we yeah it, we're, it's almost over already <laughs> so let's uh predict the cleveland series here we got four against cleveland probably won't see josh we won't no um he's still playing for the rubber ducks that's he's, what team he's playing for yeah right he's now. on the dl oh, officially um how do you think we're gonna do against that cleveland series let's hear some predictions patrick all right, uh, so I'm going to say we're going to go a sparkling 0-4 against Cleveland. Ooh. Cleveland are gearing up for the playoffs. I know that they're leading the division by a significant amount, but this is the time where all these guys are going to start making their case for awards. We're going to see Corey Kluber. We're going to see uh, Francisco Lindor. We're going to see uh, Ramirez. We're going to see all the big boys and we're going to get our asses pounded. It's just going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I'm we'll win one game. Just one though. Hmm. I'm going to be optimistic again just like last week and say we're going to go 1 and 3. That's I bet the you, optimist in me. I bet you we play spoiler and go 3 and 1. Hoo-hoo-hoo. Opposite of last week. Last week I I I think I said we'd win one game. Yeah. I'm playing I think we're playing yep. spoiler. One I don't know why. Baseball. I got a I got a good feeling here. Um usually we do who's hot who's not here. Uh, we've kind of been going through those guys right now, though. Um, and we had Devin Hur on the podcast, which made it pretty long. So I'm going to call an audible on behalf of the boys here. Yeah. And let's get to the roundtable discussion. Let's do that. Because it's going to take us a long time to talk about this. Josh Donaldson. <laughs> we are going to go around the table. And remember, Josh Donaldson is Jay. We're going to ask a bunch of questions, uh, best memories, uh, why do you think this all happened. We're going to do all... We're going to get into it, basically. So first of all, um, what will you remember about Josh Donaldson and his time in Toronto? I think the MVP coming over for for our favorite guys, Mr. Cementhead, among a couple of other pieces like Franklin Barreto. Um, I think coming over and just being dominant and being that third baseman who we hadn't really had in a long time just dominate. We've had some decent third basemen for short stints put in some good years but Josh Donaldson won an MVP award mm-hmm. that's a season that, uh, that as good of a season as maybe we haven't seen since Hinsky won the rookie of the year yeah. at third base that's in terms true. of productivity um, and just a leadership role he fit in with the core that was Bautista and Encarnacion at the time he fit right in with those guys in the in the middle of the lineup in the clubhouse he's one of the guys who I think the young players wanted to emulate like he he worked he does work hard we can't take that away from Josh injuries aside 
But I think for me, it's just that that dominating MVP season is what I'll remember the most about his time in Toronto. Patrick, what are you going to remember about JD? I think I agree uh, in that the MVP season sticks out. It's been a really, really long time since the Jays had a star who was great at fielding and great at hitting at the same time. Josh Donaldson in 2015 was the best player in baseball. All due respect to Mike Trout. Josh Donaldson did absolutely everything he could to will the Toronto Blue Jays into the playoffs, and he did it twice. Mm -hmm. I'm always going to remember the fact that he was borderline MVP for 24 months worth of baseball and baseball-related news, and nobody can convince me otherwise, and my favorite memory with him is going to be the Donaldson dash when he dashed in yeah got into uh, yeah the home plate and just the walk off it was just incredible mine is the same as Patrick he stole it at the very end there he had to throw that little 10 second memory in there and totally steal it from me and then he just took it from you man I was going to talk about his awesome celly and everything too and how the boys all came out and it was just (laughs) oh that was awesome uh worst memory I'll kick things off here opening day this week not this week. Uh, Opening this day this year. Yeah. Um, him throwing the baseball the way he did, I'll never get that out of my head because I think of Josh Donaldson as a superhero on the baseball diamond, and he looked like the opposite of a superhero on opening day. He couldn't throw. No. He was completely injured. He was completely hurt. Broken. I mean, good on him for trying to play for the boys, but he was broken. He was a shell of his former self, and it just sucked to watch. It hurt me because yeah. I, I love Josh. I love JD. He will go down as one of my favorite Jays of all time. And to see him not even be able to throw to first, like barely make it there with a rainbow, that was tough. Yeah. It's tough to see. I mean, I think my worst memories are just this, this recent stuff, just him hearing the news that he chose to do his own rehab outside of the team's high performance department and completely ruptured his calf muscle while trying to do Ugh. this it, it just kind of leaves a sour taste in my mouth like uh, you you have this million do- million dollar organization with all this money at its disposal that has this this department that's specifically in place to help players either stay in shape and get in shape or get healthy again and you don't use it i can understand that this guy's got a lot of money he could probably pay for a pretty good doctor but this this team has brought in staff specifically for the purpose of helping baseball players exactly so that's probably my worst memory i don't I don't know if it's a what the whole story is we, we, we may never know but it seems to me like he it's almost like a stubborn thing maybe a pride thing or i i can't put my finger on it but that's my worst memory is just this this recent sort of news that's come to after the fact that he used his own staff instead of ours yeah i I kind of agree, but I have an extremely vivid worst memory when it comes to Josh Donaldson, and it occurred on September 4th, 2018, which was yesterday, and it was watching an interview of him wearing a Cleveland Indians uniform. It was just, it gutted me. I, it caught me by surprise, too. I was just devastated to see him in a different uniform and see, you could see on his face, you could hear in his voice just how devastated he was that he got traded and i understand the process i've always been a fervent supporter of what atkins and shapiro have been doing seeing josh donaldson in a different uniform 
was the toughest pill to swallow this season, including the fact that the team has been perpetually injured and underperformed all year. All right, this section of the podcast is like a good Charlotte song, super emo, super sad. (laughs) So let's get to something more happy here. We'll go happy, sad, happy, sad. Is he level of excellence worthy? Justin? You're taking a lot of those little pauses today. No, he's not. The nose Uh, exhales where you're just thinking about it. The MVP is great, but in terms of like overall, he wasn't here that long. I understand that Roberto Alomar wasn't a Blue Jay for a terribly long time either, but he won two World Series with us. He he contributed more to the franchise as a whole, and he's still doing that. He's 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 coaching youth baseball camps for the Blue Jays. He goes on their winter tours. He's still involved. He's our Hall of Famer. Whereas I I see I don't see Josh Donaldson as that guy, and his career is far from over. Um, but. If I had to make a decision, if I was in the Blue Jays brass or the organization of Rodgers, I'm not putting Josh Dalton at the level of excellence. No chance. Patrick? I wonder to what extent uh, the the bitter divorce we've experienced is going to have an impact on his legacy as a Jay. Uh, when it comes to the level, what, uh, the level of excellency... Um, I honestly think he he does deserve it, and the reason why is just because he saved this team from being a mediocre franchise that was going to be over 500, but only just. He turned everything around. He brought us back to the playoffs. We won playoff games because of him. He was in town the same amount of time as Roberto Alomar, and in terms of individual performance, Josh Donaldson uh, arguably uh, outperformed Alomar in those in the four years. I recognize that there is a considerable amount of injury time uh, that Donaldson was uh, underperforming or not even on the roster because he was on the DL. But if you look at what he did with the team in the time that he had when he wasn't hurt, he saved Blue Jays baseball. Yeah, but is the level of excellence just based on on-field stuff, though? I mean, like, with Alomar and other guys like uh, Joe Carter, they, they might be retired for the last 15, 20 years now, but they're still involved with baseball and with the team. And I think that says a lot about just, like, the character. And who knows, maybe Josh will be that guy someday, maybe not with the Blue Jays, maybe he sticks maybe he stays in Cleveland just hypothetically for the rest of his career and he becomes involved with, with that city and, and that organization after he finishes his baseball career. But but for me, I, like one of the big reasons I'm not putting Josh on the level of excellence is just because outside of his on field performance, I don't feel like he's done much for the Blue Jays. I'm gonna keep my answer short and sweet. Yep. He does deserve to be up there. Uh Patrick, your rebuttal? I don't, I don't know. I like Justin's point. I get what he's saying when it comes to the extracurricular activities. Um, you can certainly say those things about, you know, the Joe Carters, the Roberto Alomars, uh, certainly Dave Steep coming out of retirement in 1998 mm-hmm. uh, to pitch. Um, I, you can't really say that about Roy Halladay, but Halladay's legacy with the Blue Jays is bulletproof and yeah. there's nothing anybody you could say to convince me otherwise. I think we're all on the same page with that. Definitely. I don't know what Tony Fernandez has done outside of his 
time with the Jays. So I don't know. Like, I agree that a player should be contributing more than just on field when it comes to like getting into the Jays level of excellency. At the same time, I think we'd have to wait a long time to kind of be able to look back and analyze Donaldson's impact. There's no doubt he was a leader in the locker room. There was no doubt he was the reason why this team performed as well as it did for those couple years. Um, I really don't know what what level of charity he uh, he put in. I'm sure there was some. Um, he, he wasn't our Roberto Clemente nominee this year. That went to Kevin Pillar. Uh, so I, I don't know. Like, I... Justin is starting to cast some doubt on my thoughts. I say yes, but I think time, we need more time to pass to see whether or not he does cycle back to Toronto at some point yeah. in his career or comes back to the city after the fact. This kind of almost feels like a like a Vince Carter-esque situation where yeah. everyone's kind of just mad at him. For Not that Vince asked for a trade that's a completely different thing, but it takes it took about 10 years, 10 to 15 years for Raptor fans to fully and some people haven't forgiven him to forgive Vince for for leaving and uh, maybe like the whole Josh thing will just take some time for people to say like you know what let's remember the good um because Josh brought good times to baseball in Toronto much like Vince brought good times to basketball so mm-hmm. I, I I think that's just one of those situations where we're, we're super bitter right now most people most of us are um at some level and I think yeah it's just going to take us a few years, maybe a few months, who knows, to get over this. All right, next question here. Um, This is a two-part question. Yeah. Who is to blame for the Josh Donaldson divorce, and what do you think happened that led to such a bitter divorce? So start with who is to blame, and then go on to what do you think happened. I think it's Ross Adkins on a power trip, thinking that our youngsters are going to be that in a bag of potato chips, and they will be. But we still need veteran leadership on the team. And I just think that Josh would have fit in so well with this team as a DH or something like that to go along with Vladdy and teach him how to play third base the right way. I just think Ross Adkins is to blame for it. And I think um, why it happened is because, again, Josh looked so bad on opening day. Josh looked horrible. Mm -hmm. And Ross Adkins probably saw that and was like, you know what? I can't have this guy playing third when I got Vladdy in the minors. So why am I going to keep this gimp out here? But at the same time, Josh did so much for that team, yeah. and it just seemed like there's no loyalty in baseball. It's a business. I get that. But, man, the Jays went through so much, and Josh took us out of that. that that's that's my two cents on it. But Yeah. The thing is, is I, I'm one of those people who thinks that Josh should have been traded before this season even started when his value was still more than a player to be named later. Um, God, that's that sucks. But... I understand, but but do you think do you think Josh would have done something similar to what Tulo said? And like, if I can't play third base, I'll pack my bags and go home. Like, would Josh Donaldson play DH with Vladimir Guerrero Jr. at third base? Hmm. Would would the no. yeah? So there's there was there's no room for Josh Donaldson on a Blue Jays team next season, with with having Kendris Morales and Russell Martin under shitty contracts. There's no room on on a on a 25 man roster, let alone a 40 man roster, for a guy who's going to make. Well, who should make twenty million, but likely won't get that now, uh, unless he has an ex- ex- insane September and playoff run. Uh, 
I, I, I don't really think that there's anybody to blame for this divorce. It was something that was almost inevitable. It was like when we traded Roy Halladay. It was going to happen. Everyone knew we were going to trade Roy because he wasn't going to re-sign with us, unfortunately. He, he wanted to go win. He was at the point in his career where he had been on a crappy team for the first 10 years of his career, and he wanted to go win. I think the Roy Halladay decision is a bit different because Roy Halladay grew up in the Jays system. He was True. a draft pick of the Jays. Everyone loved yeah. Roy Halladay, and all the fans thought, this guy deserves better. Our team is so junk. Let's send him away. Fair. And at least we got... At the time, some great prospects in return. Right. At the time, Kyle Drabeck was a top-notch pitching prospect. He's got baseball ties, his family, baseball family, mm -hmm. and he had some filthy stuff. And for a while, it looked like he was going to pay off, but he obviously did not. Yeah. Uh, they got some other pieces in that trade as well. We got that Merriweather guy who's 26, mm -hmm. had Tommy John this year. Yeah. That's who we're going to get for our former <laughs> MVP and face of the well, team? Well, it's not, not I understand confirmed. he's damaged yeah. goods. Not confirmed. But... I think it's so different. I mean, Donaldson, I think, still had some good years left with the team, and it's an exciting time to be a Jays fan because in two or three years, uh, the Jays are going to be really good again, and I wish Josh could have been a part of that. Uh, Doc was with the team for so long where it's like, you know what, Doc, you paid your dues. Yeah. You can go some. because we're not going to be good for a long, long time. The Jays will be good soon. And to do Josh like that, I just, I don't know. I don't know. Patrick, are we on here? Do you agree? Do you disagree? What do you think? I feel like nobody is to blame uh, for this situation so much as we have to look at a number of different factors that took place. There are some facts that are a bit muddled, especially by Toronto media, because it's just way easier to shank the outgoing player than it is to criticize the the guy whose job security is pretty comfortable. Uh, when it comes to JD... Um, I think it was a critical error for the Blue Jays organization to say, yes, Josh, go ahead and use your own people for your rehab. Yeah. Yeah. Like Justin said, there is a reason why those people are in those positions. There is a reason why those positions within the organization exist at all. It's because... These are the, the people, the medical staff, who are going to take care of the players when they get hurt. Josh wanted to go off and do his own thing. I'm sure he probably thought that he would be able to get healthier faster this way. Mm -hmm. It didn't work. And it completely destroyed any value that he has as a third baseman in Major League Baseball. <clears throat> Excuse me. Kind of hard to talk about this. Yeah. But it's just frustrating when we know something like Josh decided not to use the team trainers. It, it's, it's really tempting to blame Josh Donaldson for this whole situation, but at the same time, Atkins and Shapiro had ample time to work out some kind of extension mm -hmm. or or give JD some kind of reassurance that he was going to be around for the long haul. There is no reason why he shouldn't be on the team now beyond the fact that he completely botched his rehab assignment for the last 12 months. And it really kind of shakes my faith in what Tulo is doing right now. Cause I have no idea if he's working with his own trainers or with the team trainers. And now we have a bigger problem within the organization, which is, do the players trust the medical, uh, tr like the the medical staff? And right. if they don't, why? And if they do, why aren't they using them? 
there's just there's this is such a shit storm that's going to take years to unpack and it's neither Atkins or Shapiro or Josh Donaldson's fault that there is a bitter divorce this was a guy who was passionate about playing in Toronto and it was taken away from him when he didn't want that to be the case um, he probably knew this was coming uh, doesn't mean he has to like it yeah I I just I I don't feel bad for Josh Donaldson at all in this situation. No. Like it, it, it's it, it's maybe it sucks to say that, but like Clayton mentioned there's there's no loyalty in sports and and there can't be. If if you can show loyalty to an extent, but if if that loyalty is going to hurt your franchise in the long run, like not trading Josh, Josh Donaldson would have like we should have been able to trade Josh back in June when he was when he could have been healthy if mm-hmm. he wouldn't have got injured. We would have traded him long before this uh, revocable waiver trade deadline, and maybe if we would have traded him back then, we wouldn't have we wouldn't be talking about this like we are now because it wouldn't have been as big of a deal. Uh, this whole thing got got drug out so long because of the injury that we almost couldn't trade him because he came back three days before the deadline. It took him like four months to come back from a calf injury. Yeah. And this whole thing, I, I, the only thing I the only thing I really feel bad for is the Blue Jays front office for having to wait for him to get healthy so they could trade him. True. That's the that's the real victim here is is the fact that they were handcuffed by a guy's calf muscle. Don't defend Atkins, please. I'll don't. defend I'll defend them all I want. <laughs> he got blessed with an absolute gem of a farm system. Yeah. And he's gonna get made look so good. Like he's gonna look so good because of the because of Anthopolis's Well picks. and they've done they've done well in the in the couple of years they've been here, like mm-hmm. with Jordan Groshens and Adam Klopfenstein and getting a couple of good players like David Polino, one of the guys we got for Osuna, is in the bullpen like now. True. He got activated today. The one thing is I understand that it is a business. Again, I said yeah. that it's a business and I understand why this all went down. I do. I'm a sports guy. Oh yeah. But at the same time, being a Jays fan during those two thousands, early nineties years where we were awful <laughs> and then all of a sudden we were awesome. Yeah. And it seemed like it was because of one guy. I know Edward and Jose were there, and I know there were a lot of other pieces. Our pitching was great, but it mm. just seemed like Josh Donaldson put us over the top, and I'll never forget that. I'll, like, Fair. Josh was the guy. He was the guy. So last question here, because we're running so long. Um, <laughs> does the end of his time represent something bigger for the team? And did the team do JD dirty? I think this kind of shows that our front office isn't as good as we thought it would be when we hired them because they didn't deal with this properly. I'm not going to say that, like, again, we could have got something better in return. I won't say that. They should have traded him in June if they knew they were going to trade him. And if they saw him on opening day play like that, trade him earlier. And I think that it kind of shows that they can't make a decision because maybe they were like, you know what, we like Josh. He's the face of the team. And maybe they couldn't make that decision. Maybe they were a little attached to him. They didn't see the business side of it. We don't want a GM like that. We want a GM that's going to take a stance. That's going to be like, we like the player. We're going to be, have that emotional attachment to him. We're keeping him, or we want to make the business decision. I don't think these guys can figure either one of those things out. I think they're stuck somewhere in the middle. Patrick, do you agree or? No, not at all. I feel like hindsight is always going to be twenty twenty, and it's easy for us to criticize the mistakes or the uh, the bad trades or the the signings that didn't quite work out. Uh, or the players who ended up struggling, who we ended up promoting too fast, or whatever, we can't we can't look at this season as just well. Atkins and Shapiro sucked. They're they are far from the worst executives in MLB. If anything, they've proven time and time again that they have the ability 
to maybe not rebuild this team on the fly, but they certainly put their best effort forward during the offseason to bring in guys like Diaz uh, and promoting Guriel and things like that to try to make this team as competitive as they could. Mm -hmm. The problem was that there were way too many injuries and the bullpen sucked ass (laughs) and it just fell apart. The expectations they put on guys like Biagini and Clipper, they just couldn't deal with it. And then on top of that, there was the shit show with Osuna and... They did everything they could to try to sign Josh Donaldson before the season started. And then when the season started, he didn't want to sign with like he didn't want to sign. He didn't want to negotiate during the season. Totally understandable. Everybody was trying to hedge their bets and everybody in this situation from top to bottom, from the fans who pay to go see them play to Josh Donaldson himself to Shapiro and Atkins and to the medical staff who are responsible for training and developing our players and help make, making them get healthy, yeah. everybody lost. I've never seen anything like this in baseball, and I doubt we're ever going to see something like this happen within the organization again, but everybody lost. I don't think using an example like Aledmus Diaz, like defending Ross Atkins, oh, he picked up him. Guys like that are a dime a dozen. Yeah. I just don't like the fact that Anthopolis set up this awesome farm system for these guys, and they're going to get all the credit for it. See, people are going to say, oh, man, they're such good GMs. They're such good front office guys. Look at our farm system. They did shit for our farm system. We don't know the the guys that they drafted. We don't know how good they're going to be. We don't know how good this Groshans kid's going to be. We never do. They're still young. We have done a great job of building up a farm system, but it wasn't because of those two. I just think that a lot of people are defending him right now. Oh, they need to do this. They need to do that. They were put into a pretty cushy situation right now. And this was kind of their first test. Well, I think the Osuna thing was maybe their first test, and I think they did a good job there. Yeah. So, again, I'm not going to – I hate crapping all over people, but they did a good job there. But I just think they dropped the ball so much on this. I don't know, Justin. I'm, I'm still going to defend defend this front office for this. They, their hands were tied here. Like, we, we couldn't trade him because he was injured. Like, you can't trade an injured player. And, and the fact that he was injured for so long just – it's a rock and a hard place for anybody yep. who has to deal with deal with trading a player that isn't healthy. Like you're stuck, you can't do anything about it. Unfortunately, so I, I <laughs> it it sucks. It's a, it's a crappy situation that that's not going to be over for for a while. We're going to be talking about this at least in in Blue Jay land for the next few months. And if anything comes out of it in the free agency market in the off season, if more stories come to light i'm sure it's gonna get all brought back up to the surface it's gonna be one of those things that's gonna boil in a pot for a long time all right i think that's just about it because we've been talking for an hour and 20 minutes uh, again thanks to Devin haru from uh cbc for joining us uh good sasky boy uh patrick you're up next you got to get one of your uh, maritimers on the show so <laughs> wow you're really slacking, bud. Pick it up. We're just kidding, bud. Uh, may, you know what we'll do? We'll uh, we'll see if we can't get Alan, Alan Doyle on the horn. Wouldn't that be something? That won't happen. <laughs> Alan Doyle's too busy combing his hair. Uh, on behalf of Patrick, on behalf of Justin, this is uh, Clayton. Thanks for listening to uh, episode 14 already. Yeah. Holy shit. Uh, yeah, thanks for listening, guys. Again, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play Music, iTunes. Just look up Bat Flips and Maple Dips. It'll show up. Um, thanks for listening. Have a good one. We'll see you next week.